Okay, thank you for being here. Thanks for coming back. Uh, today, continuing reading of the book Nityananda, Sky of the Heart. This is episode 18. I'm sorry there's some kind of Skype white noise in the background today. It happens sometimes, and I don't understand quite how to get rid of it. So, um, today uh, we're going to continue and then finish the third major chapter on this page called The Process of Liberation. And uh, last time I ended um, in this, uh, after the Sutra 71. The Sutra 71, these sutras come from what was later compiled of Nityananda's um, utterances coming out of trance or from higher states that was compiled into what later became a book called Chittakash Gita. <clears throat> Chittakash as Sky of the Heart. And basically, the um, I, I believe it is <laughs> akin to um, what I'm reading about or what we're looking into in the Sutta Nipata class that was touched at the end of the last sutta, which is uh, Gautama speaking to a Brahmin, Sundaraka Bharadvaja. <clears throat> and there seems to be still some conflict between Brahmins and Buddhists, and then Theravadan Buddhists and Mahayana Buddhists, and different schools of Buddhists, and then different types of Brahmins, and uh, conflicts still go on. And in the teaching to the Brahmin Sundarika, uh, later in his exposition, Gautama was talking about his attainment of unbinding. And there's a term called Vijnanam Anidasanam. Uh, Vijnanam Anidasanam. Uh, Vijnanam is about consciousness. Anidasanam seems to be uh, surfaceless. And so there's this term, consciousness without surface. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's not much different than chittakash. Uh, chitta is mind, which uh, some people can argue is different than consciousness. Uh, yeah, there's the what could be called a space of mind, like a chitta, a kash, mind, space, or field, sky. Uh, and within that, there's consciousness. One could say that consciousness itself is the field. One could say that in a real non-dual view, there's no separation between the field and the contents with activity within it. The contents of mind, like particular thought forms, thoughts and emotions, that we experience as arising and passing away, <clears throat> we can in a dualistic consciousness, uh, believe that the <clears throat> uh, contents of mind arise in the field of consciousness. On the other hand, from a more non-dual perspective, there's no essential um, non-identity or essential separate differentiation, or the differentiation is only illusory, between a field of consciousness and contents or thoughts and feelings that arise and pass away within it. It's all mind field. <clears throat> it's all the play of consciousness. And um, <laughs> reality is beyond conceptualization. So a true non-dual understanding of uh, the identity, you know, the all is one uh, reality how uh, activity of mind and the field of mind is one uh, is really beyond our understanding. You know, <laughs> we're talking about um, non-dual matters in dual language when we're not fully enlightened. Nobody I know is fully enlightened that I've seen walking around or on YouTube. And <clears throat> therefore, we're just speculating a little bit and trying to get, trying to... Um, soften the mind and expand the view <clears throat> so a little bit more we have some sense of understanding 
um, reality that's beyond dualistic perspective or perception. So the, the, the Sutra 71 that Nichinanda uh, spoke, <clears throat> the utterance that was the last main one, he said, uh, Sutra 71 on the page, Mind is the root of bondage and liberation, of good and evil, of sin and holiness. Now, I brought in a quote that I thought was from the Vedas, which was not, that mind is a slayer of the real and mind is the revealer. Well, it looks like that seems to have come from old uh, Helena Blavatsky, that I don't really get into very much and I wouldn't read from her extensively. <clears throat> so it seems that she's the one who said, mind is the slayer of the real and the student of the real should slay the slayer, something like that. And, and it makes sense that um, it's a kind of rough uh, way of putting it, slayer of the real, destroy the real. And that's not even true. But, like Nijinanda saying, <laughs> mind is the root of bondage or of evil or of sin, as well as liberation and good and holiness. So mind makes virtue and vice. By virtue and vice, mind makes its enslavement or bondage, and mind makes its own freedom and joy. True, I think. <laughs> that, that's not too hard to understand. Uh, likewise, this notion of slaying the real, it's really obscuring, it's hiding, and yet mind does reveal, just the way mind can take itself from bondage to liberation or from binding and suffering to greater well-being. But we have to be willing to feel the pain first. This is a really important matter. <laughs> so, um, the commentary from Chetanyananda here after that Sutra 71, which we went over, I just want to review it a little bit. He said, the mind is both the entity to be stilled and the means of stilling it, for the nature of the mind is complex. Nichinanda used many different terms to distinguish its facets. The major distinction is between manas and buddhi. Manas is ordinary, limited mind, and buddhi is higher mind, the one capable of subtle discrimination and spiritual discernment. Then he goes, he adds, some classical Indian systems use the word chitta to denote the whole mental apparatus composed of three parts. Manas, perceiving mind, or lower mind, or concrete, uh, analytical, physical world-based mind. Then buddhi, discriminating mind, and that's the root of the word buddha, is um, one who um, has subtle discernment or discrimination. It's a kind of uh, awakened mind. And then ego or eye consciousness, ahamkara, the sense of self or conceit, tanamana. <clears throat> Nichinanda used the term body idea or body consciousness synonymously with eye consciousness. Uh, okay, so there's a sense of self and then we can say there's lower and higher functioning of mind. Is that different than consciousness? Well, some will say yes and some will say no. In Buddhism, you have five skandhas and the fourth and fifth are samskara, sankara, and vijnana. So sankara is uh, fabrications, fermentations, volitional compounds, the, uh, I would say, composited thoughts and feelings and mental, um, the, the, the data or multiple elements of mental experience. Thoughts, feelings, memories, intuition, inspiration, anything that is a thought-based <clears throat> mental, thought mental experience. But Vijnana, consciousness, fifth skanda, is different. <clears throat> and, and then there's consciousness without surface, <laughs> which is uh, when subjectivity is gone and that ahamkara is released, I'd say. So, uh, it goes on, although simple thoughts, feelings, and desires arise in the mind, the mind is also capable of realizing yana and truth. <clears throat> and so yana, like realization or gnosis. So the mind has this lower and higher uh, dual functioning. <clears throat> it goes on, yana is the highest wisdom, the wisdom of the yani, the one who has realized the self with a capital S, 
which is uh, egoless and truly transpersonal. <clears throat> so here again is a paradox, for the wisest person has transcended the mind and its desires. Quote, a yani has no mind, said Nichinanda. And so this yani is the one who has full gnosis or realization, <clears throat> full awareness without um, illusory uh, separative subjectivity. So going on, the new material, Sutra 141. Without a pure mind, how can you develop equal vision? Without practice, how can you develop balance? Through practice, the subtle intelligence develops, <clears throat> and the desire for objects disappears. So, mm, equal vision is um, akin to seeing the unity of the many or the nature of differentiation as um, <clears throat> uh, something <laughs> uh, something more than uh, we normally perceive. Like Ross saying, the physical and the metaphysical are inseparable. So uh, this is also considered, uh, Buddhism, or Mahayana Buddhism talked about this a little bit too, equal vision. <clears throat> Going on, without practice, how can you develop balance? And so practice is needed, pure mind is needed, uh, pure mind is basically, again, the, the mind that's <clears throat> free of, of lower chakra blockage. And that's difficult, obviously. Uh, all sorts of stuff keeps coming up as we continue to have uh, go through experience catalyst in the world. And so the practice coming back to balance um, is the way of purifying mind <clears throat> that develops um, a certain equanimity that from which um, one can accept difficulty. Through practice, subtle intelligence develops and desire for objects disappears. <clears throat> so, mm, I think we understand that. And mm, <clears throat> subtle intelligence, again, is a discernment or discrimination uh, metaphysical or spiritual discernment, which is um, not discrimination in a <laughs> in a political sense. It's um, discriminating that uh, what arises has causes, what arises will pass away, as well as being able to answer our questions when we have confusion <clears throat> to be able to uh, make better decisions. What really is the likely, what really are the likely, likely consequences of uh, my options to go this way or that? How best can I really achieve what I want or what do I really want or of these three or several I want, <clears throat> which are critical and which are less important? Uh, what is of higher value and lesser? when it'll be fine to wait and when, in fact, it's a big mistake to wait, when I must act and when action will be uh, disastrous. Th these are knowings, specific knowings, I think, that come out of uh, buddhi or subtle discrim discrimination. Uh, and then as this, this point of the object, desire for objects disappears, this, I think, to me, is, is the linkage between equanimity and desirelessness. Uh, as there's greater self-knowing, there's less mental conflict, less friction in general. As there's less mental conflict or more equanimity, one is more well as is than before. I, I'm more well now than before as I am being here now, not seeking to get more. Uh, here is fine. Uh, therefore, uh, desire for objects is reduced. Uh, this, this is um, uh, application of equanimity to material desirings. There's application of equanimity to mental processings as well. 
So the application or integration of equanimity to mental processing or mental activity means there's less uh, need for thought present, as Ra would say of the Council of Saturn. There's, there has, the, the arising of thought itself is reduced, as well as desire for material objects or interpersonal dynamics, uh, because the, the equanimity uh, of mind uh, is itself a, a pleasant condition and a, a, in a moderate degree or increasing degree of stilling, deeper mind stilling, equanimity is like peace. So, I, you know, may all beings be well and happy, may all beings live in peace. Peace, peace. What is peace? Well, peace comes out of a deeper mind stilling. And a deeper mind stilling comes from know yourself, accept yourself, and healing. And so, stilling, not forcing stopping, but a naturally slowing down, cooling down, uh, less agitation naturally when applied to mind that means that the roots of mind are purified of um, the irritants that lead to desiring and the irritants that lead to excessive thought and feeling it's, it's ultimately deep mind irritant irritation, deep mind pain dukkha, deep mind pain that is um, at the causal level uh, generating uh, unnecessary thought and feeling as well as desire. <laughs> so, um, what I found from meditation is progressively stilling deeper levels of mind, leading to progressively um, less interest in unnecessary thinking and feeling as well as uh, steadily decreasing desires for uh, ultimately what's of less value. And it doesn't mean, I mean, I'm not perfected in any way, so I only know what I know, where I am, where I couldn't explain, uh, which I couldn't explain. I don't know where I am. Only somebody greater than me will know. And, and for you to say, I know I am here. Really? <laughs> really? Because you have perspective on it? Because you have uh, distance on it? I, I thought you're there. And so, uh, I don't think we can determine our own attainment. I don't think we can determine our own level um, without someone who's beyond us um, providing their input. I, I don't know. Gautama could, but I can't. Maybe you can, uh, or maybe you're fooling yourself. <laughs> so, um, people fool themselves all the time in this world. In any case... Uh, deep mind stilling uh, has not only an, uh, the effect of reducing desire for objects, but also uh, reducing the deep mind pain and irritation that leads to unnecessary thinking and feeling and confusion. And certainly self-conflict is reduced as well. So the commentary on Sutra 141 Chaitanya Nanda, I believe, said, as our understanding expands and we begin to see beyond the, quote, body idea and beyond the limits of ordinary mind, a sense of detachment also grows. This is, yeah, this detachment, desirelessness, and perfect dispassion for worldliness, what Nityananda calls vairagya, are necessary requirements for the seeker. The, sanya, the Sanskrit word sannyasi means renunciate, literally, one who has cast away. Gautama, just yesterday in Sundaraka Bharadvaja Sutta, talking about uh, having abandoned the homes of the mind, the Amarama, the haunts of consciousness that are both sensual and purely mental, the, the dwellings, um, the, the habitual dwellings in mind, how I normally think and feel, what I'm normally attached to, my attached, my mental, physical, mind, body, Attachments, which really means the um, habitual ways of thinking and focus in mind associated with our particular uh, targeting of desires in the physical world, physical social. I'm think, you know, thinking about career, thinking, I mean, this is called unnecessary. And, you know, Gil, the reality is that a lot of people, or most people listening here, um, are, are a bit more like an advanced, uh, sort of in a funny position. There, most wanderers who may be interested in this material 
um, are sort of um, quasi-renunciate laymen or quasi-worldly renunciates. <laughs> Some kind of middle position between a renunciate yogi or monk and a householder, layperson, ordinary person with family and friends and in society. Uh, a lay, not a monk, because we're not that disciplined. <laughs> Most people are not, actually. And people can be very critical, but very few people are actually disciplined um, in life. Um, and those that are, are commonly, um, have some kind of arrogance. <laughs> very common. And those that don't have arrogance are often not disciplined enough. Uh, so we're, we're not, you know, some of the original teaching, talking about greed for sensual desires and objects and aversion, hatred, uh, our problems are often less dramatic. Uh, attachment to certain dynamics of relationship. Uh, fear of um, being judged and criticized, uh, low self-esteem, self-doubt, sense of unworthiness, uh, excessive self-criticalness, fear and uh, self-inhibition, uh, irritability and frustration at the evils and injustices of the world, uh, confusion about path and purpose, uh, old resentment to parents or past lovers or doubt and fear and hopelessness and resignation against about the future. Much more subtle things, not salivating for sensual objects and not walking around striking and beating people. So, <laughs> uh, the casting away that we need is casting away uh, the, the confusion and the conflict and the excessive wrong thinking perspectives of mind that are surely derivatives of three poisons or three unwholesome roots, grasping, aversion, ignorance, yeah, sure. But what we're grasping is much more subtle and um, interpersonal psychological. And what we have aversion to is much more associated with damaged self-esteem. And the ignorance is very much about <clears throat> um, personal path and um, the meaning of cat the, the, the reason for which catalyst arises like why did that happen I can't understand it it seems so unfair or how is the world the way it is today Th these are all much more subtle levels of uh, these unwholesome roots grasping aversion ignorance three poisons and uh, that's really where I think a lot of people are stuck in much more subtle um psychological, interpersonal dynamics of the sense of self and uh, uh, more subtle deficiencies like uh, insensitivity, not listening well, a fear of, of painful feelings within, <clears throat> pain, uh, uh, old pain upon loss or wounding, uh, much more psycho, uh, psychological and then spiritual uh, collective issues of, of um, maladjustment or non-integration or alienation or loneliness or a sense of uh, confusion about purpose. This is really where a lot of people are at. And some of this old teaching <clears throat> um, just needs to be fine-tuned. So detachment, desireless and perfect dispassion for worldliness. What does it mean for the person who's a six-density wanderer in their last lifetime or, or a spiritual student or somebody who's just, you know, basically kindly and basically not making trouble but um, trips over their shoelaces sometimes and sometimes talks too much and sometimes can't listen and sometimes has some old wounding and doesn't have so much self-confidence or sometimes they doubt themselves too much and they get stuck in old sadness and discouragement. <laughs> you know? Where, where do you, how do you meet that with perfect dispassion for worldliness? Huh? How does it put together? How does it integrate? Well, <laughs> good question. But uh, ultimately, 
you know, <laughs> the work is greater love and understanding. And it's ultimately going to be detachment from what we don't need. And that's a very personal call. And it's um, what's critical actually is honesty. And I, if I have time, we'll talk. I will talk about that later. So <clears throat> we have to um, adapt for our own much more psycho psychological um, experience. It's we have a very our current experience for, for spiritually oriented people. <clears throat> the blockages are very much. Uh, Subtle. They're very much more subtle than before. It's not like uh, we're just lying and cheating. I mean, maybe people in business are lying and cheating and beating people, but that's normally not the kind of problem that we need to release or face and, and uh, work through. So uh, the renunciation is much more subtle today than before. And in many ways, it's uh, a renunciation of the fear associated with not wanting to see some bitter truth. The renunciation of what prevents deepening honesty. Renounce the blockages to honesty or clear seeing, particularly of your own psychodynamics. And when you do that, you'll be able to see the world more clearly too. So I'll go on. He says, Chitanyananda, however, renunciation is a subtle concept. It is not objects that we must renounce, but our desire for objects, not actions, but our attachment to the results of those actions. True renunciation is not of things, but of the desire for things. Vairagya is the attitude leading to a state of understanding in which the true nature of objects is known. True nature of objects clearly will be increasingly known as we are more quiet in... Um, less disturbed in deep mind and less agitated in the conscious mind, monkey mind action, that, that goes away. The renunciation of desire for things, it's certainly a renunciation for a desire for that which is harmful or renunciation or of the demand that I get all that I want. Uh, res renunciation of the desire to um, to get revenge for the to the one that hurt me, or to make my mark on the world if they don't want me. Uh, it's in many ways uh, renouncing desire for the. It's not quite just the desire for the impossible or the harmful. It's an ignorance um, that is based in the current desire for what's impossible or harmful. <laughs> there are certain things we want that are harmful. There are certain things we want that are impossible. It would be folly to keep... It, it's reasonable to want what's impossible, but it's folly to expect it. <laughs> it's reasonable, I guess, to want some things that turn out to be harmful or that we even know are harmful, or they're mixed. Generally, they're not harmful totally, they're mixed. There's a plus and a minus. I like, uh, you know, drinking tequila every day, but it hurts my body. Well, one answer to that is do it and see what happens. <laughs> you'll get hurt, and then hopefully you'll learn. Another is to just shut it down. Some people do that, and they think they're very righteous, and then they become dogmatic and aggressive to others. Desire for what's harmful, desire for what's impossible. It's reasonable to desire an ideal that's impossible. Uh, it's critical to know it's impossible. <laughs> it's reasonable to hold my hope. I wish for this ideal. I know it's impossible, but I still want it. Fine, but I know it's impossible, so I'm not going to knock myself out to get it because I know it's impossible. So I can accept the unacceptable, as uh, 2150 would say. Or I have this desire for that which is not quite to my long-term welfare and benefit. It's not quite wholesome. It's a bit unwholesome. Uh, there's a mix. Uh, I like it, but I know I shouldn't. Why? Because I know it's harmful. 
Is it? Yeah. In, in some cases, it may well be somewhat harmful to you or me, and I want it anyway. Fine. Now what? <laughs> well, there's the moment of decision. Uh, and ultimately, you know, you see through it or you see it through, as Ray Vespi said. You either do it or you don't. If you don't, you may still want it and have a lot of friction that you can't get it because you're not trying to get it, and why am I not doing it? It's not that bad, and then all this bargaining goes on in the mind. Um, one should be careful. Ra said, of course, if it's known to be harmful to other or self, experience it, experience it in mind and don't play it out. But these are very subtle dynamics, you know? And so just to say desire for things, I don't want a refrigerator. Well, I like my refrigerator. I don't want a double-sized refrigerator, but I like my refrigerator, so I have a desire for my refrigerator. I'd be sad if it broke. Is that a big problem? Well, I don't think so. But, you know, if I want a bigger and bigger refrigerator and more, and I need a Montblanc pen, and I only use Montblanc pens, and I only wear my shirts once, and I'm, you know, those are assholes. So don't be an asshole, but you're not. So some of this teaching is for assholes. <laughs> Sorry. So, meaning, some people that, that to whom these classic teachings are addressed are really animalistic. Now, people were more animalistic 2,500 years ago or, or 100 years ago. Some people are more animalistic than others, if you hadn't noticed. Um, for that type of mind, um, hard, hard-ass teachings of um, don't be greedy and don't beat people might be useful. Um, but for most people... The renunciation of the haunts of mind or homes of mind uh, is much more subtle and uh, commonly have to do, as psychology will say, with distorted notions of self-esteem, um, expectations of what's impossible, poor discernment, um, self-sabotage, uh, unrecognized aggression towards other, uh, blatant and very visible aggression towards others because of old anger, because of old wounding, because it hadn't been healed and the person is afraid to feel weak, so they turn it into anger to other. Um, wrong view. My E.T. family has abandoned me. I'm on this world because I'm being punished. Things will never get better. The whole universe will be destroyed when Jesus comes back. All things like that. Wrong views that make people crazy too. So, vairagya is critical and, and a very subtle application is as well. And then uh, he says, consequently, these objects no longer have any power over a person. So, yeah, our attachments attach us what we feel we can't be without and what we cannot stand ultimately have controlling power over uh, mind and, and our uh, life course. Sutra 80. No need to strive for anything. When the mind chases desires, one must strive to attain one-pointedness. Concentrate the mind in the higher mind. Right? So concentrate manas in buddhi or rest the busy, active, functioning mind in the still, uh, peaceful, seeing, awake, awake mind, which is means <laughs> develop one-pointedness. And uh, that takes time, obviously, to get to a greater peace. Uh, Chaitanyananda added, meditation is an integral part of sadhana, meaning practice, Nichinanda spoke of meditation as a focused concentration, the merging of mind into wisdom, the look within. The goal is bringing the mind to perfect one-pointedness. Achieving this goal tests all the faculties of the seeker. The mind must be stilled and drawn away from desire. The breath must be harmonious and ultimately become single. The awareness must, must reach inside to come in touch with and observe the action of the Kundalini Shakti. So, the critical importance of val and value of meditation. Meditation as beginning with uh, concentration, right? Typical samadhi, shamatha type practice in Buddhism. 
developing one-pointedness. Merging mind into wisdom is the lower into the higher, or the busy mind-body personalistic mind into the quiet, um, not more non-dual <laughs> stillness awareness of so-called higher mind. This is inner work. Bringing the mind to perfect one-pointedness, um, one inevitably, at least if it's mindfulness practice, at least in my experience of Vipassana, um, will lead to catharsis of all sorts of lower triad blockage. Strong emotions arise into consciousness. It's the same kind of things with drugs and alcohol. I was thinking about this yesterday, why pe people have different reactions. Some people, um, like, like nitrous oxide is called laughing gas. Um, well, you know, not everybody who takes nitrous oxide ends up laughing like a fool or a maniac. It doesn't happen. And so the story of Ram Das giving his guru, um, I forgot his guru's name, giving his guru uh, a whole huge uh, blotter of LSD. And the, the guru had no, no change in his skillful, peaceful engagement with people throughout the day for the next five hours. And I believe at one point somebody... There's some in the story or some other story. The guru or the teacher says, "Oh yes, well, I'm hallucinating now," but there's no emotional cathar and no emotional triggering. There's no laughing. There's no rolling on the floor because he's finished with all that. So likewise, people who take certain drugs and alcohol uh, basically experience disinhibition. Disinhibition means that what had been blocked and suppressed comes out. So the weepy drunk and the angry drunk and the uh, giggly laughing gas stoner and the sorrowful stoner and the uh, whale on the beach go to sleep stoner <clears throat> and the um, sensual lover stoner, uh, everybody goes to a different place, partly related to um, what had been buried and what is now disinhibited. Uh, likewise, uh, what... Uh, what the meditative practice of seeking one-pointedness generates or some of the consequences along the way to perfect concentration depend on what the person has been blocking over the decades, what the person has been avoidant of. And so you can say it tests all the faculties of the seeker. Again, a lot of these presentations are inadequately psycho psycho psychologically sensitive, in my humble opinion, a lot of the teaching, I think, from Advaita Vedanta, or Nityananda, or Gautama, or Pali Theravada Buddhism, um, needs to be um, needs to be fine-tuned a bit for uh, psychological application. Uh, it's you know, it's not a material matter. And people today, you see, people today are more complicated than they used to be. They're more psychologically complex. The mind is less distorted and more complex, just as Ra said. So we're talking about teachings that, these are classic teachings from Nityananda, and it was fine for him, and Gautama, and uh, the older versions, for a time when humanity's mind was, I think, according to Ra, less complex and more distorted. More distorted because less developed. Less complex because less intellectual. Today, more intellectual, more complex, more contradictory, more self-tangled, and yet less distorted because uh, of more potency in being able to discern, okay, I am not body or mind, and there is spiritual dimension, and there is something greater, and I can hold these opposites at the same time, and I'm less animalistic. So a less animalistic humanity is a greater intellectual or mental spiritual humanity, which is then inevitably more complex, but that's less distorted. But these teachings, which were guide, gir, directed towards, <laughs> they were basically geared, that's the word, geared for uh, less complex and more distorted 
and more animalistic humanity needs to be updated, upgraded a bit, to be psychologized a bit uh, for a more complex, more psychological, uh, and less animalistic uh, humanity. It's a very subtle matter. And so achieving this goal tests all the faculties of the seeker. This is not uh, alpine skiing. It's It's not a physical feat. Testing the faculties... It's the testing of how well you can sit in your pain, your psychological pain from what had been repressed for decades, and the complexity of what is discovered, and and the bitter truths that you might that you've been avoiding, you or me or whoever, and so that all is that kind of deep facing of the self, of the wounded, complex, uh, emotionally um, unstable mind old wounding, lower triad blockage. That has to be faced first before the breath can become harmonious and become single and then awareness uh, observes the action of Kundalini Shakti. There are a lot of folks, a lot of Western students going into Hindu schools, Pranayama, Kundalini Yoga, um, with a simple-minded approach, ignorant of their own psychodynamics called spiritual bypass. So, uh, applying classic teachings uh, in a psychologically uh, avoidant way in support of continued psychological avoidance, self-avoidance is a spiritual bypassing. It's a very subtle matter and um, there, there are many classical teachers Buddhist and Hindu who um, are not distorted enough to realize how distorted most of their students are. Sutra 21, like milk being boiled, the vital breath in the Sushumna channel is heated by intense faith and discrimination, buddhi, faith is sraddha and buddhi, and led towards sahasrara chakra, meaning crown chakra, the still point at the top of the head. As the kundalini power crosses each subtle energy center, properties of the energy that evolves, properties of the energy that evolves as the world changes. I think it means that as Kundalini, this is actually a very subtle point, and that's the that's the that that's how the individual becomes totality or returns to totality, is that the the full power of each of the seven rays is finally available. As the Kundalini energy or prana goes from root to crown, crossing each subtle energy center up the spine or in the subtle body, properties and energies of each chakra uh, are integrated as um, that soul achieves perfect development. So each of the seven, or each of you know chakras two through six, are more fully contributed to the total seven ray output of that total be of the of the being as the world changes. I'm not sure that, I think there's some grammar problem here, but the world changes, the person changes, and the energies of unblocked chakras are, male, are, are at last made available to the, to the being. And so that being, therefore, approaches totality. Uh, I need to finish this page today. Okay. Chaitanya Nanda comments then, as a natural result of the awakening of the inner transforming power, the Kundalini Shakti rises through the chakras to join and merge in the heart space, the Brahma Randra, but the heart space is perhaps in the head. The love, and, and so 246 line, right? The heart of six ray being fourth ray, mm, the four six linkage, very important. The love and happiness that then arise within us dissolve all the various tensions and superficial desires and satisfy our deepest needs. With a full heart, the mind can become still and one-pointed on the power of the divine presence, meaning everywhere is God, (laughs) the hallowed, sacred nature of all. You know, divine presence is not a guy in a body. Divine presence means I feel God here everywhere. I feel God everywhere. Everywhere I look, I see God. I see joy or... I see perfection, unutterable, prof, uh, unutterably joyous, important, meaningful, valuable. What does sacred mean, right? Oh, sacred. What does sacred mean? 
Oh, I feel sacred. It's the, the sacred. What is sacred? What's the experience of the sacred? Awe, joy, bliss, respect, um, pro I for me, um, boundless importance, meaningfulness, that this, this moment, every moment is boundlessly valuable. Every, every iota of matter or every, uh, every datum, every dhamma um, that I'm perceiving now, I feel um, pulsing, bursting, radiating with, with such meaning and importance and value. That's akin to the sacred. It, it certainly comes with joy and bliss. It's hard to describe. Um, everything is perfect. It's all one. It's all perfect. It couldn't be changed. It's at the maximal development now. There's no further development. That's what non-duality means, is that there's no path. <laughs> there's no time and space from the perspective of the law of one. A lot of people talk about the law of one, don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, because you have to have transcendental, non-dual experience to know what the law of one is. It's not just a thing and it's not even a law. It's the reality. It's, it's a descriptor of, of reality. That apparent duality is illusory and the true nature of apparent duality is a single identity. And perception of that in real time is joyous and blissful and of all a perception of the all supremely important and valuable supremely meaningful and rich in meaning uh, this is a uh, an ex this is akin to an experience of the of the divine presence right so <laughs> people use a lot of words that are not really well understood if if experience has not been had and i can only tell you what experience i have had Maybe you've had one too. But we use a lot of words, uh, the five tastes dull the tongue, as uh, Lao Tzu said. So we play with the five tastes all day long and the tongue becomes dull. We play with words all day long and the mind becomes dull to the reality of the experience uh, uh, that the words signify, to which the words point as pointers and nothing more. If you don't, if you don't have an experience of divine, of divine presence, and interpret it in your own way, right? I interpret it in my own way. How else could I do it? Uh, I don't want to interpret it in somebody else's way because it wasn't my experience. I didn't think, oh, here's a divine presence. I feel a divine presence. I don't think in your terms. I think in my own terms, and you do too. You think in your own terms too. <clears throat> don't take somebody else's language if it doesn't suit you you know make your own song we know the words so we can choose choose your make you know craft your own song fashion your own song to well describe your experience describe your experience with the words that you find best this is where reading and study and thinking and talking are very helpful to uh, widen vocabulary <clears throat> and and today many people are becoming so dumbed down i can see it and i am some part of that myself people who say fuck man D -d fuck it fuck man whoa and they can't talk they can't think because they don't have a vocabulary because they went to you know government mandated indoctrination centers called public education as uh, berwick would say uh, they've been um, shorn free of um, a rich vocabulary by which they can have a more intimate uh, experience uh, or, or contact with their own experience, a more intimate way of experiencing life and describing it. <clears throat> it's very serious. <laughs> and so um, one one needs to find... One needs to be real honest and, and wish to really carefully uh, know my experience and not just take other people's words and then presume we know. Because, you know, even this, the divine presence, it's, it's going to be experienced in a different way for each person and they're thus described differently. Anyway, he goes on, this is the merging of the individual into the universal and transcendent. 
that Nichinanda consistently called the most important purpose of our presence on this earth, right? The purpose of, of incarnation. To merge heart to heart and spirit to spirit and spirit with the Guru in the field of supreme Shiva Shakti frees a human being from all mechanistic thinking and from the bonds of cause and effect. Karma. This is the union of the individual and the divine. So that's Jivatman and Paramatman. Uh, Jivatman and Parabrahman. So the mind-body-spirit complex and higher self back to Logos. And um, merging heart-to-heart and spirit-to-spirit with the Guru. And so this is a Guru-Mar-Guru path. Um, It doesn't have to be that way also. Sutra 40. It's really irritating, this white noise. We have to do something about it next time. Fulfillment is possible only when you merge with this pure heart. There, all idea of you and I disappears. In the sky of the heart is liberation, love, and devotion. So, sky of the heart is chittakash. Uh, you, when you merge with this pure heart means when there's no more impediment to a full experiencing of chittakash. That fulfillment is deep. Um, it, it's basically a spiritual fulfillment. And that's even deeper than emotional or sensory. There, all idea of you and I, or duality, disappears. So, Chittakash is of the one. It's non-dual. It's of non-dual awareness, or consciousness without surface. That is an initial liberation. And naturally, there's love. Ra had said that when energy gets to the sixth chakra, um, by the energy liberated by the contact of the upward and the downward spirals, from the root and from the crown, uh, when six chakra is activated, uh, the energy liberated at that meeting point then means that service to others is automatic. It means that one is radiant in intelligent energy, divine power, divine or (laughs) pranic power, logoic power radiates naturally in love wisdom. So comment here, the last two paragraphs from Chaitanyananda. Liberation is the clear, luminous recognition that our mind, emotions, and physical body are nothing more than extensions of the supreme mantra of God that pulsates silently everywhere and always at once. So, uh, it's hard for any of us to talk about liberation, actually, because we're not there, but we can say from our position outside that it's certainly clear and it's certainly non-obstructed the identity of the apparent individual with totality or the logos or source is clear meaning mind, emotions, physical body as extensions of the mantra of God which is omkar or or the word (laughs) the logos as the word as an expression of source. So there's source and then logos and then Atman and Jivatman and human being. Different. So, uh, and this pulsating silently everywhere and always at once is the intrinsic vibratory dualistic nature of light itself. The concept of light creating the illusion of limits, as Ross said. The nature of intelligent energy. Right. So we have intelligent infinity, we have intelligent energy, and then we have seven dimensions or rays, and then apparent beings that are apparently evolving. Uh, all of that is of light, which is intelligent energy. Seven rays come out of light. That light is vibratory because it's polarized, and therefore there's an experience of duality. Without duality, there's no creation. There's no light without vibration. Pre-vibratory, there's no creation, seems to me. And his final paragraph, everywhere we look, inside and outside, we experience nothing but the extraordinary clarity, beauty, and the power of the Supreme Self. It is eternally pulsating, creating, absorbing, and manifesting yet again 
ourselves, the world, all that is. This is simply the fundamental expression of its absolute freedom to do whatever it wants, an expression of its supreme freedom and its incredible joy, Satchitananda. It sounds a little flowery there, but um, <laughs> this is the also suggestive to me that uh, the Logos uh, creates endlessly freely, yes, Expre fundamental expression of its absolute freedom to do whatever it wants. This is the importance also, or, or it has bearing on the importance of uh, giving yourself freedom on the spiritual path. Right? Spiritual path is, uh, requires discipline, not too tight, not too loose. But if it's too tight, you will get yourself into trouble. If you're too self-controlled and self, uh, mentally self-determining, according to what you should and must do all the time. If you're too much like that, you'll be a jerk and you'll be an unpleasant person to be with. And if you're too loose, or when we are too loose, when I say you, I include myself always. So when we're too loose, then there's no sense of path at all. There's just a blob. And <clears throat> do what we want, and willy-nilly, not caring about consequences, we get into trouble, you know. <clears throat> we fall down here, and we get up there, and we make trouble there, and we get some benefit there, and it's a, the, the unexamined life and the unregulated, um, unregulated self-expression. And so some balance <clears throat> between letting ourselves do just whatever we like and being very careful and somewhat disciplined about how we live, this is a balance that's important. Uh, but the Logos, um, you know, this is something that Confucius said, something like at age 60 or age 70, um, he could do whatever he wanted without uh, creating a problem. <laughs> it's a particular quote. And actually, I think I will end with that uh, quote, if I can find it. Just a second. All right. The master says, or the master said, At 15, I set my heart on learning. At 30, I knew where I stood. At 40, I had no more doubts. At 50, I knew the will of heaven. At, at 60, my ears were attuned. And at 70, I followed my heart's desire without crossing the line. And so the milestones of his life, only at 70 could <laughs> he freely follow his heart's desire without crossing the line of um, the line of ahimsa, of harmlessness and uh, non-infringement, not infringing, not harming, uh, free, only at 70, <laughs> because his physical desires of sexual and uh, appetites of all, all sorts of appetites were naturally reduced at age 70. And he had enough wisdom and life experience to be finished with harmful ways. And whatever was crossing the line, whatever he had wanted to do, desires that had indeed crossed lines that were uh, no longer skillful, they were become unwholesome, unwholesome ways of being. Um, he uh, had experienced enough of them to know their harmful consequences and remember well enough to no longer have interest in repeating the fulfillment of the fulfillment of those desires. Uh, likewise, um, his sense was that um, a greater awareness that um, trouble for you is trouble for me. And therefore, there's an alignment of his heart's desires with, um, with the Dhamma, with the Dharma, with what's uh, Yama Niyama, with Panchashila, with the ways of right action and activity. And so this is a great harmonization of individual will and desiring to the, the way, the Tao, the path, that which is of um, virtue 
and concentration and um, benefit to all, love, wisdom, uh, that takes a long time. It just simply takes a long time. But um, 50 years of, of living here, spiritual working here, is profound um, when measured in higher dimensional terms. So, on that note, I think I'll end for today. And I will have to listen to this file and see if it sounds like uh, we're at the ocean beach with the roaring waves. Next time, I will um, perhaps take the physical book in hand, Sky of the Heart, Jewels of Wisdom from Nityananda, and start the reading through of that. We'll see what happens. So anyway, thank you for being here. I hope the sound quality is all right. Take good care of yourselves, and good night.